All right. Glad you're with us. If you're visiting today, you are joining us on week 21 of our journey through the book of Acts, which is actually week 71 of our journey through the whole biblical story. We started a year and a half ago in Genesis, and today we find ourselves in Acts chapter 15 and 16, where one of the most important events in all of history takes place, and that's the first time the gospel message is brought to Europe. The anchoring passage actually begins in verse 6 of chapter 16. Let's read. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. That's a pretty smart conclusion when you get such a clear call. Now, in the grand narrative of Scripture, I've already given you where this fits into history, but when we try to bring this down to how it works into your and my life, this story is about miraculous interruptions. Sometimes the most important work, in fact, Vit and I, looking back, it's been those divine interruptions that have ushered in some of the most meaningful seasons of our life. We were going along one way, being faithful to whatever it was we thought God had put in front of us. God stepped in and opened up a different door that was unplanned and unexpected. And as we look back, those were the best times. The journey is one of those experiences for me. God used an abrupt ending to start something powerful and precious. Sometimes it comes through a great tragedy or a closed door, or a surprising opportunity, or the end of a relationship. And yes, sometimes it's a vision. God can use all of these moments in our life to redirect us into something powerful. Miraculous interruptions is what this is about. And what it begs is two questions. How do I get into a position where I'm open for such an interruption? Let me make it a simpler question for you. How does God reveal his plans to us. Most of us would say, man, if God would just tell me in a dream what to do, that would be easy. I could, I could commit full board to that. But actually, if we back up, we see that there were some very important circumstances and conditions in their life that were in place that put them in this position that when God did speak, they knew it was him speaking or that they were even capable of hearing. So we're going to back up. I want to trace through the story leading up to this vision that Paul has and give you five key elements that are in place in their life. Now, I'm not listing five things and suggesting that they are five steps to getting your personal vision from God. That would be a a horrible abuse of this passage. But what I can tell you is to look at their story and see five elements that for them were critical. And I think there's lessons for us to learn in that. And the first thing I want to point out is that they were fully engaged in spiritual community. 
You may remember that in chapter 15 last week, we looked at this momentous event when Christians almost got religion, (laughs) and thankfully didn't. When the Judaizers were coming in and saying, it's not just faith in Christ, it's not just the blood of Christ, it's circumcision, it's the law. They were trying to add religious righteousness to the gospel. And one of the critical components that allowed them to navigate through that attack of the enemy was that they were in community with one another. There was wisdom. God spoke to the body in a way that he rarely speaks to individuals. And we see that continuing here. We ended last week at verse 35. Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. They were in spiritual community. Listen to me. Contrary to the modern idea that if I'm gonna hear from God, it's gotta be my vision, I've gotta go off to some cave someplace and God's gonna speak to me. I think God can do a work in our lives personally when we get alone and get away and I think we all need that. But God speaks to his body of which we're a part. God confirms what he's saying to us as individuals when we bring them to one another. It's interesting that after Paul has his vision, there's this very important word. All of a sudden it goes from them to we. Luke now becomes a part of this story, the author of this early history of the church and the gospel of Luke. But it's important that he says, after Paul has his vision, we immediately began to pack, and we concluded that God was calling us to Macedonia. You see, the still small voice may speak in our prayers, but God screams his will in the body. They're not only in spiritual community, they're being faithfully active and obedient to what they already know is God's will. Here's one of the most important things that you need to recognize about God's will. It's more about obeying what he's already revealed than figuring out what's around the corner. It's God's job to figure out what's around the corner. In fact, the book of Acts shows us that we're his vehicles, but he's the one that accomplishes his will. Think about every critical event in the fulfilling of his plan and his prophecy that the gospel would be brought first to Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria and finally to the Gentiles in the uttermost parts of the world. And look at how God is at work accomplishing his plan. Acts chapter two, Pentecost, the the Holy Spirit comes in power and out of that the gospel comes to Jerusalem, phase one. Acts chapter eight, the church has gotten kind of cozy. They're happy in Jerusalem. Why leave? And so what does God do? He removes the hedge of protection. Persecution comes. And what happens? (laughs) Finally, they go. (laughs) They're scattered. And as they go, it says throughout Judea and Samaria, they bring the gospel. God didn't cause the persecution, but he allowed it within his plans. We come forward to chapter 10, and we see the miraculous visions, God prompting and moving in Peter and in Cornelius, making a connection between a conservative Jew and a Greek that would never happen except for God sovereignly intervening. And what do we see happening? The gospel comes to the Greeks. And here we are today, looking at Paul and his team just doing their thing, being obedient to what they 
believe God's called them to, and God has a bigger plan than what they're seeing, and so he sovereignly intervenes and gives Paul a vision. You see, there's a beautiful truth there about how God works. He's at work. He's at work. Jesus is building his church. You can count on that, and if you're walking with him, he's willing to let you be a part of it, but trust him. You don't need to know what's too far around the corner. What you need to know is what are we to be doing right now? And we see Paul and his team being faithful to what they were called to do. Look at verse 36. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are. Look down at verse 41. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the church. They're being faithful to what they know God's already called them to do. I love that phrase, strengthening the churches. Let me tell you what I know is God's will when a next step is not apparent to you. Strengthen what God's already doing in your life. Strengthen what he's already put in front of you to do. That's what Paul and Silas are doing. And it's in that setting, being faithful and moving, that God's able to direct them. In fact, without them even knowing it, by just being faithful to what they already knew to do, God was sovereignly putting them just a quick trip away from Europe. And they didn't even see it coming. The third thing we see, and this is an interesting piece, and that's purposeful disagreement. Let's read it. Verse 37, Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul did not think it was wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. This is a very famous parting of the ways. Paul and Barnabas disagree over Mark, who's part of Barnabas' extended family. We have lots of opinions about this, debating over who was right and who was wrong. And maybe that's how you've approached this story. But I want to point out, Luke casts no judgment. Luke does not present this disagreement as though there was a right or a wrong. We take that term, sharp dispute, and presume it's about anger. Now, it might have been. I don't want to spin something here. But let me suggest that it might not have been. Let me suggest that there are times when we're not hearing the voice of God, when we haven't been inspired by a fresh vision, that we have very different views of what we should be doing. Maybe the sharp disagreement meant that they got to a point where it was just so clear that both of those priorities could not be part of the same initiative. And so they agreed apart. Here's a possibility. What if they were both right? What if Barnabas was right because he was looking at the man? And what if Paul was right because he was looking at the mission? And what if Barnabas saw in Mark somebody who was worth investing in, as indeed we know he was, because eventually that decision to continue to pour his life into Mark yielded fruit towards the end of his life. Even Paul says, send Mark to me. He's of value. Barnabas saw the man and said he's worth investing in. But Paul saw the mission. And Paul knew that John Mark 
had failed when it got dangerous, and he knew this mission would be just like this, and he would prove to be right. There would be beating, there would be imprisonment. He looked at the mission and he said, Mark, at this point, isn't the man for that mission. And so here they are, Barnabas, the discipler, committed to discipling Mark. Paul, the apostle, committed to the mission. And they part ways. But there's no indication that they stopped talking. In fact, there's indication that Barnabas and Paul continued at some points to work together. We know Mark eventually became an important part of his team. You see, we get it wrong when we think that disagreement can't be something that's agreeable. That disagreement can't birth new ventures. What do they get because of this, as God works through this? We get two teams preaching the gospel. We double the effort. Mark gets a discipler who's able to take him to places where he can continue to mature in his faith. Less front line, less dangerous places, and he can grow in his faith. Paul gets some open slots on his team, and as they go forward, he's able to add two pretty important names, Timothy and Luke. You see, God can even use purposeful disagreement. We're going to have differences of opinion. And what we do, because we have this notion that to be in unity is to always see things right, we get so stuck in our opinion that when the other person can't flex from theirs, we call that other person unteachable, stubborn, unwilling to hear reason, when in fact, it could be out of opportunity. Purposeful disagreement. I think it's an important way that God leads us in our life if we're willing to embrace it as peacemakers. Fourth thing we see is, this is a real theological term. This is the heavy moment. The fourth thing they're doing is trying stuff for God. That's pretty deep and profound. They're trying stuff. God hasn't spoken clearly to you. You don't have this Macedonian call to go do something. Try stuff. Where do I get that from? 16 verse 6, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia. They were kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. And then they came to the border of Mysia and they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus prohibited that. So twice they are going about trying to do things and they fail to achieve their goal. They try to preach one place and they're silenced and they try to go another place and they're unable to enter. We don't know how the Holy Spirit did this, whether it was through circumstances or through a common conviction or legal issues or a broken wagon wheel. We don't know how God forbid them from doing these things, but the point is they were on the move. They were trying. What have you tried lately for God? Well, I don't know what to do. I'm waiting. God hasn't spoken to me. Try stuff. Scott Larson is here from Straight Ahead Ministries, and Scott could stand up here and tell you for the next four hours stories about stuff they tried. I remember praying with them for different properties along the way, different pieces of a vision. This is what we think God's leading us to, only to face all sorts of difficulties. But they tried. You gotta knock on a lot of doors until you find the one that's gonna open. Try stuff. And then finally we have, because of all of that, this miraculous interruption. 
I'm guessing at that moment, Paul said, we're stuck. We're between a rock and a hard place. We can't preach there. We can't go there. They may have in their mind reached the end, but it was exactly the place where God could open up something powerful. And we get the Macedonian call. And so they say, could it be that God's called us to Macedonia? Let's take a vote. And by unanimous consent, they pack up and they head over to Macedonia. I need to be in spiritual community where I can hear God speak. I need to be active in what he's called us. I need to even embrace our different viewpoints as an opportunity to learn and see if God is birthing new things. Yeah, I need to be trying stuff. The failure is never in trying and not succeeding. Too many churches never try things because they think all the programs that didn't work somehow don't bring glory to God. The failure is in never having tried. I think we'll answer for that. Let's just quickly look at Philippi, the first excursion into Europe. Three significant events occur in Philippi. There are the first converts, Lydia. There is spiritual attack and imprisonment. And then there is miraculous deliverance. Paul comes to Philippi. His strategy was to always begin with the Jewish population. Typically, that had been synagogues. But Philippi has so few Jews that they can't have a synagogue. Jewish law said you need 10 Jewish men in order to start a a synagogue. So short of having that kind of population, they would meet traditionally outside of the city near a river, and it was called the place of prayer. Paul and Silas and his entourage go, and who do they find? A group of Jewish women. I want to be clear. God reaching all of Europe began through a women's prayer group. Think about that. Lydia comes to faith, and we see the first convert. Second event, let's pick it up, verse 16. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. That's the right message. That's the right message. What is a girl possessed by a demon doing, following the apostles, saying they've got it right? Why was that a problem for Paul, who eventually turns to her and says this? Finally, Paul became so troubled, verse 18, that he turned around and said to the Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. Why did he do that? Isn't even coming from the wrong source the right message okay? No. We've seen a lot of the enemy's tactics in trying to oppose the church. This is a new one. And this is one of the ones that I think he's most successful at. And that is he aligns himself with the truth. He aligns himself with the truth. And then once accepted, he begins to move people away from the truth. Virtually every cult that has come out of Christian circles has started by somebody who began in a Bible-believing setting and then moved away from it. See, that's the danger here. Paul sees it. Well, of course, that gets them in trouble. The girl's owners get upset and the officials of the city come and arrest them. They beat them. They put them in prison. And then we have the third event. We pick that up quickly. 
at uh, verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. Two of the most well-known verses in all of Scripture follow. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. He brings them to his house, and they're all baptized into faith. There's more to the story, but that's the skinny. That's the primary pieces here. First encounter in Europe. And what I want to do is wrap up by asking the second question. Once God has brought a miraculous interruption, and we step out believing and in faith, what are some of the evidences that will follow and will confirm that? I see four things in this story. And the first is the most important of all. The gospel is transforming lives. When it's really a work of God, in the end, it's not just about making people a little more comfortable and a little more profitable in their living. We're to do that in the name of Jesus. But ultimately, that points to Christ, points to the cross. Lives are changed through the bringing of the gospel. We see that here. And I think of all things, If that's not happening, I'm not sure that we can fully be confident that God is the one that has moved us. Second, not only is God moving, but the enemy is attacking. How often have we seen that here? That where God is moving, the enemy is always challenging. Many of us could tell stories about that. And if you can't, if you've never been in a setting where because of your faith you've faced a difficult situation, here's a thought. Maybe the enemy isn't worried about you. And maybe that makes you completely irrelevant to what God's doing. I don't know. But it's something to look at because when God moves, so does the enemy. He takes notice and he begins to attack. Third, believers are making sacrifices. Whenever God's truly at work and because the enemy is always responding, there is always cross-bearing by followers of Jesus. There were beatings. There had already been stonings. There will be imprisonment. Paul will look back at all of this and say, I I would suffer all of those things in order that I might know Christ and gain Him more. There's always sacrifice. And then finally, God's power is demonstrated. He will not be thwarted. He will ultimately bring deliverance in this earth from physical prisons sometimes, from eternal prisons always. It's interesting. Philippi, this church that got started because of this divine interruption in Paul's work, becomes Paul's favorite congregation. His letter to them we call Philippians, is a letter in which Paul is uniquely personal and fragile 
and transparent. My point is that Paul would look back at this movement of God that was not expected or in his plans and recognize that it was the most precious thing of all. Here's one of the things he calls them in his letter in Philippians 4. Let's say this together. My brothers and sisters, you who I love and long for, my joy and crown, my dear friends. God's divine interruptions yield those kind of relationships. I gotta admit, when I was thinking about this today, I got worked up at the thought of it because that's you in so many ways to me. Four years ago, serving God, totally different place. That door closed, not by my will. My prayers were the exact opposite. God closed those doors. And what I thought was a personal tragedy, I now look back and realize, hey, it was a divine interruption. And Vit and I both believe that with all that God's allowed us to do over 30 years of ministry, we're in the most precious season of all. And we look at you, and we think of you as our joy and our crown, our beloved. We want to be a group of people that are always listening for what God has, but not just listening, ready to go. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, put us in circumstances where we can be listening to you. Help us to be faithful and obedient to the things that you've called us to. If nothing else, help us to be devoted to strengthening what you've already given us to do. And then surprise us, Lord. Surprise us. We know you've called us to this city. We have plans, but we really want your plans. And so we ask that you reveal them to us, and we ask that you do it dramatically and powerfully, and we together commit to follow up. In Jesus' name, amen.